Welcome to Disability Inc. I'm Jean Mizutani from Include NYC, joined by Susan Shear, the Chief Executive Officer at the Institute of Career Development. Today's topic is advocacy, activism, and the future, and we're thrilled to have Susan here. She is an accessibility pioneer and a vibrant member of the disability community. Prepare yourself to be blown away as I review some of her achievements. Susan is the founder of Accessoride, has successfully sued the MTA on several occasions to increase bus service and add elevators to subway stations, and worked actively on getting accessible yellow cabs. She advocated for accessible mammography centers and won a major victory with Lenox Hill Radiology and has served as the Deputy Director of the Mayor's Office for People with Disabilities and the Executive Director of the Center for Independence of the Disabled, where she led efforts to assist people with disabilities in the wake of 9-11 and headed disability services at Columbia. There is more, but I will sum up by saying that she will be an insightful partner for a conversation on advocacy and activism. So welcome, Susan. Thank you for having me, Jean. We're excited. This is so wonderful. Let me just start. We often use the terms advocate and activist interchangeably. What's the difference? I'm not sure that there is a hard and fast difference in my mind. I think of activism as the people who are on the front line out there putting their, sometimes their bodies um, out on the street, calling attention to hot issues in our community. Whereas the advocates can also be, all activists are advocates, but maybe not all advocates consider themselves to be activists. Activists, the advocates are often the people on the inside who are translating what activists are asking for into terms that can be understood by a wider audience to gaining legislation or right. or uh, other kinds of acceptance and then working to see it implemented and enforced. I remember a few months back we saw pictures of disabled people um, at a protest that was ADAPT. What groups are out there still doing it now? Well, ADAPT is absolutely at the at the front of the class and has been. They, they started out um, doing activism around transportation and they've now moved towards, uh, largely towards personal care. They, um, they are legendary for uh, roll-ins in Washington and, and <laughs> chaining themselves to fences and they, they've been tireless in calling attention to community needs. Um, Not Dead Yet is a, a group that is working on um, advocacy and activism around assisted suicide and oh, wow. feels uh, strongly that there is a slippery slide risk for people with mm. disabilities around uh, this interest in, at the state level in passing assisted suicide laws. That's very interesting. I didn't know about them. 
One thing I do know, though, these groups that are out there protesting are bold and they are brave. When I see the photos, I'm always amazed. Absolutely. And, and they would tell you that literally they feel, not incorrectly, that their life is on the line. And that's why they're willing to put their bodies on the line. Wow. Not just for themselves, but for other members of the community who might not be able to make the trip to Washington or the trip up to Albany. They're representing all of us. And here in the city, there's there's Disabled in Action is still very active. Um, their Taxis for All campaign, which is working, continues to work on the accessible taxis, and ad hoc groups that come together around different issues. Hmm. When was the most active period for advocacy? You know, when you look back at the history of the disability movement, there has been activism going into the 19th century. And every generation has built <laughs> upon the activism that, that came before. The organization that I run, the Institute for Career Development, was founded as the Institute for Crippled and Disabled Men oh, wow. in 1917 to help returning wounded World War I veterans rehabilitate. But they took that into the activism and advocacy arena to help vets, to help uh, get coverage for medical rehabilitation, and most importantly, to pursue employment. So there's a long history. I think when we think about the modern civil rights, uh, disability rights, we think about it starting in the 60s out in uh, UCAL Berkeley, which was the home of the free speech movement. And there were two students there, um, Ed Roberts and Judy Human, who is a native New Yorker, who uh, advocated for full inclusion and were living in the infirmary at Berkeley and wanted mm. accessible housing and accessible classrooms. And they, when they graduated, founded what is called the independent living movement. And there are independent living centers throughout the United States now that are run by and for people with disabilities that do direct services and, um, and also continue to do uh, advocacy. But I think the first real steps, the big steps came forward in the 70s and the 80s. Mm -hmm. So the, the law we think of as the grandfather of uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act was called Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, and it was passed in 1973. And it said that any uh, entity that received federal funding could not discriminate against people with disabilities. And that opened up a whole new uh, world of opportunity for people with disabilities uh, in terms of accessibility to court systems, to government office buildings, to employment, uh, both in the federal government and federal contractors. Mm -hmm. So it was, a, it was really, um, life-changing and even that came with its own activism because there was a long delay in issuing regulations to implement that law to tell people here's how here's how to translate that into what it means day to day and a group of activists crawled up the steps of the Capitol and they um, 
had a sit-in in the Secretary Califano's office for days and refused to leave until they said agreed to issue the regulations. Those pictures are online. If anybody's interested, they're amazing. They're startling. What a piece of history. Yes, they, they really <laughs> they really are. And another big uh, important law that was passed in the 70s was then called the Education of All Handicapped Children Act, now known as IDEA. Uh, and it was the first, it's the first law and really the only law that requires any group in the United States to get a public education. It, it talks about a free and public education. There is no other group that is specifically singled out in federal law to receive a, to receive one. And it talked about the concept of inclusion and putting students in appropriate education settings. Um, and then, of course, we went to uh, 1990 when we had the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And in between that, there were uh, laws passed around air fl uh, flying in airplanes, fair mm -hmm. housing, right. um, voting. But then in 1990, the Americans with Disabilities Act came along, and that, ex in essence, expanded that 504 coverage anti-discrimination to um, public accommodations, whether they received government funding or not. It's a lot of action. <laughs> Who were the players? Well, in New York, what I think of as being sort of the core of the disability advocacy movement came from a group of people who um, had polio. And many of them were not able to return home to live with their families. They either needed uh, what they then called an iron lung or specialized medical oh equipment or and or their parents lived in a walk up and they couldn't walk up the stairs anymore. And many of them lived together in a facility on Roosevelt Island oh. and for many years. And in some ways they became their family to one another and, and still are. And unfortunately, some of them have, have started to pass away recently, but there's still many, uh, many of them are, are left and they were among the founders of Disabled in Action, uh, again, along with Judy Heumann. Um, and they, they were fighting for themselves to be able to go to college to be able to have an apartment to live in, to go on public transportation so they could get to school and to their job, and on and on. And they really set the tone. Another one early on was what's called, uh, used to be called Eastern Paralyzed Veterans Association, and is now called United Spinal. And they too, along with DIA, filed many of the groundbreaking lawsuits here in New York City. So many of these people were not born with a disability. You're mentioning polio, veterans. Interesting. Yes, that's correct. And I think there, you know, I think it's interesting to think about that the psychology of people who acquire a disability can be different from the um, from that of people who are born with a disability like like I was. I'm also, a, I consider myself an activist and an advocate, but I think in, in, some t in some cases you see that people who acquired a disability have their identity 
was formed as somebody without a disability and they they look around and see the discrimination and the obstacles that were set up and right. and say I I was fine before why should I have to deal with these obstacles they should they are blocking me from living my full potential mm. so I guess every person with a disability has to cultivate that thinking you know the get rid of these obstacles, I'm entitled to this, this is not fair, and run with it. Exactly, exactly. Wow. There was a wave of advocacy about voting access. What was the outcome? Well, there, were, uh, there was a, a lawsuit filed here in the city to make polling places accessible, and the city settled and agreed to do so by a certain time. Um, Sadly, that lawsuit was uh, refiled just recently uh, by uh, the Center for Independence of the Disabled in New York and others who pointed out that all these years later, 20, 30 years later, the, there were still polling sites that where there were steps to get in to, uh, to the polling booths where they didn't have ballot marking devices, where it was very dark and you couldn't see to fill it out, uh, or it was very squashed and you couldn't move around in a, in a wheelchair. And there's been progress made of moving, um, moving polling sites to accessible locations, but it continues to be a challenge because many of the polling sites are in public schools exactly. and many of the public schools <laughs> are themselves right. not accessible, uh. which is a major issue that prevents students with disabilities from having the full range of choice of what school to attend. Mm, mm, mm. That's gotten a lot of attention over the years. I think that is starting to improve, but look at the length of time. It really is shocking. So what's going on these days? Well, in, in some ways, the list is not all that different <laughs> from the list I relayed out from the oh. 80s and 90s. Um, we thought that these issues were settled and uh, we could move on to new issues. But in fact, uh, it's more of a spiral than it is uh, anything else. And so here we are. There's been a whole other wave of uh, lawsuits around making the subway stations more accessible, around voting. There was a major um, settlement around curb cuts in 1994, and just recently there was a new settlement in that case which read almost identically to the one that had been done in 1994. So here we are, all these years later, we still have broken curb cuts, we have corners that are missing curb cuts. It's, it's so basic to people's ability to get around. Um, on the positive side, we uh, won a lawsuit to make 50% of yellow ta uh, taxis accessible by 2020, but that settlement is being threatened by the rise of Uber, exactly, which has uh, hurt the right. yellow cab industry, right. and people are not buying new cabs and buying medallions, and right. so it's going to be challenging to meet that target. That would be less of a concern if Uber was providing accessible vehicles, but they have declined to do so, to 
to assist drivers in purchasing them to subsidize the cost and there are lawsuits pending against Uber uh, throughout yeah. the country. You can see the difficulties because those are privately owned vehicles, they're not part of a fleet, it's one individual person's car. Um, I did see that there was some kind of plan that was supposed to increase um, accessibility, but I have no clue how they're doing in meeting it. Well, um, the yellow taxis are doing much better than they were, although we're still nowhere near the 50% mark. But um, the experience of people trying to get an accessible Uber car has, has been disappointing and, frust and frustrating. It's very exciting when laws are passed and it's tempting to celebrate <laughs> and we can become complacent. We can assume the cause has been won, but it's not like that, is it? No, unfortunately, I, I wish that as well. And in fact, it's, it's the vigilance after the battle is quote unquote won that is really as important as the activism that led to it in the first place. Because very often the law gets passed and everybody goes home and says, okay, my work here is done. And in fact, it isn't. And without the advocacy to implement it and to enforce the full requirements of the law, there is a tendency to slip and, and slide. And we just mentioned a few minutes ago, here is, you know, idea, uh, which is so important for general education and, and having a full continuum of services in special education that allows special ed students to be in general ed as much as possible. But we see that there has not been enough attention paid to making schools accessible, um, to making extracurricular activities accessible. And parents have been pivotal advocates for getting IDEA passed and for gaining services in throughout the systems. Uh, we think of the Office of people with developmental disabilities, so much of that was spearheaded by parents to create that service system. Um, and without them, we would be even further behind. But in the end, unfortunately, what we often see is that people wind up back in court, uh, having to file another lawsuit to to enforce to enforce the outcome the, of the of the pre, of the previous oh. lawsuit and you know that's that's a very imperfect way to make progress it's time consuming to very. file a lawsuit it's very expensive and you wind up with a narrow decision and whoever is responsible on the other end which is often government but can be the private sector too right. or both it stays very focused on doing exactly the letter of what comes out of the lawsuit and not really looking to the left or the right to more fully um, to more fully engage and, and bring real change. So you're not really operationalizing anything. You're just trying to comply piecemeal. Exactly. Oh, now in a previous conversation, you mentioned changing hearts and minds and you talked about how much time that takes. What has to happen? Well, I, the good news is I do have lots of positive stories to, to, to talk about in that area, but 
Um, while the change may be um, initiated at the uh, pointy end of a lawsuit, mm -hmm. in the process of implementing the uh, requirements of the lawsuit, there often winds up being a lot of contact between the disability community and the, let's, let's use the MTA as an example. And the original lawsuit against the MTA uh, said that 60, the result was 65% of the buses had to be made mm -hmm. accessible. Now it's 100%. Many of the drivers refused to carry the key that they needed to operate the lift. And so somebody would be waiting to get on the bus and the driver would just throw up their hands and say, oh, I'm sorry, I left my key at home. And there were people in the disability community who went to talk to the bus drivers union and said, hey, we're your sister, your mother, your brother, and maybe you someday. And it's really, really frustrating after fighting for our rights, you understand this as union members, oh, yeah. <laughs> to then not be able to exercise it. And it didn't happen overnight, but slowly but surely, some of the drivers wound up giving <laughs> keys to people in the disability community who then made copies and distributed out to people. And over time, that union wound up being one of the strongest supporters of disability rights. It's amazing. So it's kind of like sowing future advocates to help take up your cause. And I assume you have to keep tending that and keep that going indefinitely. Exactly, because, you know, people leave their jobs, yes. um, new people come in, they need to be educated about the history of the issue. They need to meet people in the disability community to make, to make this real to them. So, and, and when they do, it's often very effective. You know, we don't want to, we don't want to rely on or, or use inspiration, what they call inspiration porn of feeling sorry right. for people with disabilities or feeling that people are pathetic. That's absolutely at odds with the disability rights movement. It's not a real connection. But seeing people as people and understanding that we all have the same needs and desires and that the obstacles that have been put in in the path of people with disabilities are the result of bias and and discrimination not always intentional but without education and talking and getting to know people that's where that understanding and that breaking down of of uh bias and, and implicit bias and, and attitudes and ableism starts to happen. Mm. Tell us how you came to the disability movement. Well, I, I have to start by saying I came via my mom, like <laughs> <laughs> so many like people, like so yes. many other people. So I was, um, I entered elementary school before there were any laws that uh, required uh, education for students with disabilities. Mm -hmm. And my mom went to the elementary school down the block and advocated for me with the principal to give me a chance to attend school in, in the local elementary school. I was the only student with a disability from K through 12. And my mom, they 
told my mom that she had to be never be more than 10 minutes away. And she had to go on every school trip. And any time that there was any issue, it was her responsibility to take care of it. But she never stopped advocating for me in the school system, in the health care system. And, and when it came time to go to college for uh-huh. me to find uh, funding when I was told that I wasn't college material. But I wound up going to Yale. And that's where the jokes on that. Yeah, and that's where and that's where I started to do my own advocacy because it's a school that's um, has a, a rich history, but it, it's not a rich history of uh, including people with disabilities. The buildings are very old. There's a lot of stairs. It's difficult to get around. I made common cause with some other graduate students who had disabilities and we papered the campus one night with the access symbol with a red circle and a slash through it showing all the places on campus that were not accessible and it wound up in the New York Times and I wound up with a meeting with the president of the university and I I went from there. (laughs) That's an amazing story. Now you told me earlier that you didn't always use a wheelchair. That's right. Um, I have spina bifida, which is a congenital defect of the spine. I had 20 some odd surgeries as a a child and uh, wound up at times with short leg braces, but eventually I broke my uh, leg in three places, wound up and I used crutches for 25 years, actually starting right when I started college. And about a decade ago, um, I had to move permanently to using a wheelchair. And here I have been doing disability advocacy for, for so many years at that point, working with so many different parts of the disability community. I thought I really understood. You thought you knew it all, didn't you? I thought I did. And <laughs> then I discovered that, no, using using the wheelchair for mobility was not one click over on the spectrum from using crutches, but really was a whole different uh, animal because I always had the option on crutches of walking up a step or two. And now every building that I get to that has a step in front of it and that doesn't have a ramp is a business that I can't enter. And it's extremely frustrating and unfair that at this point in time uh, there hasn't been more attention paid to enforcing removing those easily uh, addressed physical barriers. Understood. So a lot of work has gone on over the years, sometimes uh, what you would call repetitive frustrating work (laughs) because things don't seem to stick But I always look back at the activists of the 60s and 70s with wonder because they were just so effective, they were so exciting. In many ways, they were larger than life. Do you think today's individuals with disabilities are as active as those pioneers? Um, I think think it is not... uh, I think I would say not not I don't want to pit one group against the other. I think activists use the issues and the tools of their time. 
Right. And the 60s were a time of uh, protest marches, the civil rights movement, uh, you know, anti, the anti-war movement, and there was what we call intersectionality. So of course, in all those movements, there were people with disabilities and vice versa. And so using the, those models, those were the tools of the trade at the time. Um, and they were incredibly effective. We're, we're in a different developmental stage now. So we have ADAPT, which is, we mentioned earlier, is still a very radical uh, <laughs> group. But we also have uh, the American Association of People with Disabilities, which is a more mainstream organization that continues to advocate for but more on a policy level. They are based that's in Washington too. and they, right. and that is very important. That's where I've spent my career has been in the, in the policy and operations world. Right. I'm somebody who likes to take those, that spark and bring it inside and nurse it and see it implemented and educate the people who have the power to, right. Of the purse, um, and to make things right. and to make things happen, and so I think that has become, you know, they, we talk about second wave feminism. It that be there are different tools of the trade. What I do see is that there are uh, there is a very active group of. I don't want to say necessarily that they're all younger, but um, there's a very active group of of people with disabilities on. Uh, Twitter. Oh yes, that are mm -hmm. having a amazing conversation every day <laughs> about what kind of language is appropriate to right. use. What? How should we? How should we talk to people who don't have a disability about our experience? What are the next big goals in the movement? Um, so I think there's, I think there's another tool goal the the specific goals may be the same but it may be different but the general goals are the same but the tools are different and the and the phase that we're we're out i don't know if there are as many of what i would call the loud and proud disability community out on the streets i don't know if that's necessarily a, a bad or a good thing right. um mm -hmm. I, I see a lot of disability pride in uh, writing on the, uh, the just very rich body of uh, authorship by the disability community about the disability experience in their own voice where they can control, the writers can control the message and not have it interpreted. The, the New York Times has had a very um, robust set of writing about people with disabilities and by people with disabilities and that was a unheard of for the new york times to cover that topic up until very recently um but i also think that we have many people in the disability community who are still struggling every day for basic survival they live in absolute poverty and they don't have the luxury right. of activism. It is a luxury. It is. It, yes. Right. It's, you know, they, they need to worry about where their next meal is coming from. And, 
whether they can you know get medical coverage um, and whether their benefits are going to be cut off and the fact that people have been disempowered in this way is is a whole other topic for advocacy but unfortunately that's it can leave people just feeling so powerless and a lack of self-confidence and pride and self-efficacy that they can they can change things on the larger scale. Hmm. That's quite a story. What about the parents of today? Are they keeping pace with the need for advocacy? Well, I, I do see that the group of parents that I had the most contact with when I was coming up in my career in the 80s and the 90s, who, as I said, really invented the the whole field um, working with state government there they had community-based agencies that they started they learned how to advocate with their elected officials to get budgets they uh, went to the school system they created uh, group homes they are aging and um, it will be interesting to see who steps up as they move out of the, the their daily advocacy um, and how those people will step up because it's a different group of parents in some cases in the New York City school system. Many of them are recent immigrants. They may not speak English. They may come from cultures that are not used to right. suing for their rights or, mm -hmm. or questioning authority or questioning teachers because that's not what's done in there. Um, and they may be mm -hmm. hourly workers. They can't take off to go uh, to IEP meetings because they'll lose their job. So it's, uh, it's challenging. You know, it was very interesting. There was an article in the paper recently saying that attending an IEP meeting um, could be done under FEMLA, sick time off. I'm not a legal expert about oh, FEMLA, but you can cite um, the care of a relative that's ill and you can cite an IEP meeting. That was something new, which I found really interesting. That makes a lot of sense to me. And you know, New York was very uh, is ahead of the game in passing a very strong sick leave mm -hmm. law, and there may be opportunities for parents to use that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, we're hoping. What are the current active issues now? Um, well. I was speaking about Twitter and the power of Twitter, and I, I, a recent issue uh, has been about, pla about plastic straws. So the environmental movement came forward and said uh, there was a whale that was found with a, uh, a plastic straw, and it's, I think, in its blowhole or something, and it, and it, it, and it suffered ill health because of it. The picture was very compelling and seemingly overnight everybody decided that uh, plastic straws needed to be banned. And Starbucks, uh, which as you can imagine uses a lot of plastic straws, stepped up. They think of themselves as a very socially conscious company and said we're going to ban all straws. Well, people with disabilities um, with certain kinds of disabilities and, and older people as well cannot drink without a straw, especially a straw that bends. And 
it, it means that when they're away from home, they would not be able, if they were feeling ill, if they were dizzy, they wouldn't be able to go in and buy something at Starbucks or in other places and get a straw. And it was a very interesting about how different movements need to learn to respect one another because the environmental movement said, well, our, this need is more important than your need, as opposed to saying, we hadn't thought about that. We didn't consult with you. Now that we understand, let's try to figure this out together. But the disability community took to the Twitterverse. <laughs> it got uh, Starbucks attention. And uh, there have been uh, very active negotiations with Starbucks that looks like uh, they will be resolved successfully to do what is totally obvious, which is put a sign up that says, if you need a straw, right. please request one and keep them behind the counter. Yeah. And people like to right. talk about how complicated it is to accommodate people with disabilities and expensive, and it's very rarely true. Most accommodations are free or minimal money and can be accomplished very easily, but what it does require is a dialogue. It requires talking to the community, talking to people with disabilities, and not making decisions without consulting. Right. Well, this is the thing about social media. When you first talked about it, I thought, well, that's wonderful, but people with disabilities are following other people with disabilities. So it becomes an echo chamber mm -hmm. where people who know already are talking to others who know already. But this is a, a great example of how it can be used, where you can actually reach a giant corporation relatively quickly, easily, and free, cheaply. Right. It's amazing. Exactly. And then, you know, on a, on a broader scale, um, this presidential administration um, has proposed a number of significant policy changes that would negatively impact the disability community. Uh, first and foremost is, is uh, cutting or eliminating the Affordable Care Act and the Medicaid expansion that goes with it. Many people with disabilities rely on Medicaid for their health insurance. It's the only health insurance that prov that pays for home care attendance, which is critical to keeping people living independently in their home or in the community as opposed to having to be institutionalized and live in a nursing home, which is a, a fate that um, very few people with disabilities and very few people without disabilities would want. Would want. Definitely. Um, and so that's really that's really prompting a, a great deal of advocacy activity right now. Um, and then there is something called Crypt the Vote, uh, which is about getting the disability community to come out and be counted and be seen so that we have power in the political process. Locally here in New York, um, the Medicaid budget has been growing and there is a concern uh, that there are cuts coming that will hurt our community. And already we've seen um, a, a, a real attack on what's called consumer-directed personal care 
where people can hire their own home care attendant. They're on Medicaid, they're through Medicaid, but someone else does the payroll and the back office administrative, but you hire your own person and you direct them. And the uh, reimbursement for that is being cut in such a way that it will, it, there's a fear that that service won't be available. That's a real concern. Politicians have typically not tried very hard to win the disability vote. <laughs> what would have to happen to change that? You know, we talk about uh, in life, in, in the world I'm working in now, in employment, we, we, they talk about diversity and inclusion. And uh, I, I often joke that uh, disability is the last D in diversity and inclusion, but it's important to, to get both of those words, especially the, the inclusion, and they even put equity in. It's not enough to pass a law and say that people have rights. If you're not truly included in every facet of society, then the promise uh, and the potential of civil rights laws are really not being fulfilled, and that's particularly true with the disability community. The challenge for the community is to be seen as a community. We can often wind up uh, pitted against each other based on the type of disability, so people who are blind versus people who have MS versus people who are deaf because of the funding streams that create those kinds of divisions. But in fact, the reality is while there are particular needs based on disability, the issues that people care about are the same for everybody. Transportation, housing, education, employment. The, the accommodations or the path there may be slightly different depending on the disability, but the goals are the same. So we as a community really need to speak with one voice and to let politicians know that we're watching that we're looking at how they're voting on issues that affect us. We're looking at where funding is going and that if we don't see our issues represented appropriately, that we're going to uh, vote for people who will represent so us. This is very much in the hands of people with disabilities. That's and they're saying. And their allies and friends, right? They're because 20% of the uh, U.S. population has a disability uh, by one definition or another. But if you add in their siblings, right. their parents, their friends, their work colleagues, almost everybody has some connection to somebody <laughs> with a disability and may acquire a disability themselves at some point in their lives. So everybody has a stake in this. And what helps people with disabilities almost always helps other people as well. You know, we always give the example about curb cuts. If you're carrying a rolling suitcase, if you're pushing a stroller, it's very helpful to have a curb cut instead That's of having right. to, you know, pull it over the over the curb. And we call that we talk about universal design. It right. works for everybody. Okay, well, let's consider this a call to arms so all the people with disabilities, <laughs> all their friends, allies, and relatives can start recognizing 
what issues have to be supported, whether they're issues or not, if they serve the disability community as a whole, it really would require a lot of attention. People are not accustomed to doing that. That's right. Um, that's absolutely right. And and it needs to start in, in the school system with teaching students about disability history and disability pride and knowing that they're part of a, a loud and proud community and, and to try to address those feelings of shame and deficits, which is so much part of the dialogue about disability. Indeed it is. We've talked about how advocacy and activism might not be as robust, at least as it appeared in past years, the activists of the 60s and 70s. Um, we sometimes think it looks like it might have skipped a generation. You gave good reasons why that might not be the case, why what we're saying might not be the reality. My final question is, could it come back? Absolutely. As with all the other civil rights movements, um, unfortunately, when what we thought were settled uh, rights are threatened, it's that is usually what causes activism to come roaring back. So we saw uh, two years ago uh, the Women's March um, right. throughout the country that there hadn't been an, a, a march like that in recent memory. And people with disabilities were there. Women with disabilities and, and men who support women with disabilities uh, were there. And so in this current progressive moment, where we see so many groups coming to the fore and saying, you know, we 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 belong here. This is our country, and we we are entitled to be treated equitably. We they need to embrace the disability movement, and the disability movement needs to embrace their issues as well. That again, what we call intersectionality, because we are stronger when we fight together and we're weaker when we can be separated and put into individual pots that can be stirred or not stirred. Um, uh, the disability community has done amazing, amazing things throughout its history. I would, I have no doubt that when they need to, when we need to, they, we will rise. rise. We will rise. We will rise and step up and <laughs> use the tools of the moment and make sure that our voices are heard. That's amazing. Thank you very much, Susan. I've enjoyed this tremendously. Thank you. Thank you, Jean.